0: Hi, everyone, and welcome again to another podcast and or YouTube video on Gaudium et Spez 22 podcast and video. And I'm very, very happy to once again welcome back my former colleague at DeSales University, Dr. Rodney Hauser. The uh, veteran listeners to my show have heard Hauser blathering and bloviating for Many many episodes now, uh, but I made the decision a while back that it would be great if I had like a my Ed McMahon, a sort of sidekick on a more regular basis. So, uh, and a lot of the I think the more interesting podcasts have a sort of feature like that. So hopefully Rodney will be on here a lot more. Anyway, Rodney, for those who don't know. Uh, is the chair of the, at least for now, of the Department of Theology and Philosophy at DeSales University, my former place of employment, which is in the Lehigh Valley near Allentown, Pennsylvania. Rodney got his doctorate at Marquette University in the theology of Hans Urs von Balthasar. What year? Ninety nine, two
1: thousand Nine. Yeah. Five
0: years after mine, and you're like five years younger than I am. So it's it's you're you're just a, you're a, you're a mere pup. A mere pup. <laughs> anyway. Uh so anyway. Well, we're going to have a little church chat today. We're going to we're we're going to talk about special church issues. Uh, so I, I've gotten emails for a lot of people saying, oh, I don't like it when you talk about all these intra ecclesial issues. They don't really concern me all that much. Uh, and then I get other emails from emails. Obviously, people say yeah, that we need more of that stuff and less of the dense theology stuff like with Cyril O'Regan and whatnot. Uh, uh, but so, you know, there's no pleasing everybody. But to those people who say you don't like the intra ecclesial what some people call inside chris altieri calls inside baseball church chat Um, the fact is these things matter Uh, and otherwise i wouldn't be talking about them i'm not a gossip at least i'd like to think i'm not a gossip Uh, and these things don't interest me beyond the full uh, signs of the times that we are actually called as a church to discern and if our task is to evangelize the world We have to know first what the world is, what it's about, what the signs of those times are, and therefore what the church should be doing. And in my estimation, the church isn't doing what she should be doing. Uh, And and so those are some of the things we need to talk about. So along those lines, um, Dr. Hauser is actually writing a guest blog post for me, which should be up on Thursday or Friday, uh, the 15th, 16th, 17th, whatever that is, on the uh, recent essay by Cardinal McElroy in America magazine on, uh, you know, the synodality, radical inclusion, open table. He doesn't call it this, but it's essentially open table fellowship uh, for, the, for the Eucharist that anybody can receive the Eucharist and so on. So I'm looking forward to that. So that let, we're going to talk about that here today, at least for starters. So I'm, let, let's begin then. I'm going to turn it over to you, Hauser, because uh, people hear me enough. Uh, what, what just sort of what is your general impression of the McElroy essay, why do you think he he wrote it when he did, and what what issues do you have with it?
1: Mm, wow,
0: I mean that's a lot. I mean you can pick. Yeah, no, them no,
1: we, we'll, we'll pick. Yeah, we'll pick apart some of those things as we go. But um you know, right out of the gate, it seems to me that, um, I mean obviously you know different cardinals are you know sending things out there right now because they would like to go to the Senate to go in certain ways, and um, I mean, the Germans have made literally no bones about where they wanted to go. And I was a little bit surprised to hear an American cardinal so forthrightly, um, you know, uh, really, in a sense, echo what the German synodal path wants Maybe in a slightly toned down way, but really, uh, you know, along the same lines, changing church teaching on homosexuality, changing church teaching on uh, women's ordination, you know, putting those things at least on the table for change. Um, Mm -hmm. And it was especially surprising given Pope Francis's recent comments, you know, to the German bishops, like this is not what this is about. That we're not we're not having a synod to to rediscuss settled matters of doctrine and things like that. so I think it might have been strategic because I think what Cardinal uh, McElroy might be doing is almost responding to Pope Francis's rebuke to the Germans by saying, "Well, these matters are still open, though; these aren't settled matters of church doctrine." And so I think I, I think that's where he's coming from. Um, you know, the problem there, and, and we could just start with with with, with some of the problems is the, the the implication or the the overall gist of the thing is to say. If we have more dialogue, we'll simply have more diversity of opinions, right? So the, the, it's a call for right. big Catholicism. And right now we've been restrictive and those in the church who want gay marriage and those who want women priests and stuff like that, we're not listening to them uh, or, or whatever. Um, what we see in the culture at large in the United States, however, especially from the elite culture in the United States, however, is not actually more diversity of thought on these matters. What you see is absolute hegemonic uh, propaganda about one way of thinking about these things. And if you are on a university campus these days and you don't agree with the general consensus of the, you know, the uh, corporate media and you know and the managerial yeah, elite, yeah. you better keep your head down and your mouth closed. So, so I think that's the first thing I would just want to say is that yeah. it, it seems to me a bit disingenuous to act as if. What we're going to get out of all of this if we go down this path is greater dialogue and greater. And what you're going to get is exactly what you're getting in the mainline Protestant churches and in the culture at large. And that is yeah. one way you're allowed to talk about these things. Other, otherwise, you're a hater, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So that'd be my first.
0: Well, that, well, OK, we'll stop there because I want to yeah. comment on that because yeah. I, you know, I'm a certain age and uh, you're just slightly younger. Well, you know, I grew up in the post-Vatican II environment. I was actually in the seminary during the sort of 78 86, or 86, at the very beginning of John Paul's pontificate. And the fact of the matter is uh, this language of dialogue, inclusion, diversity, uh, let's not be rigid. This is not new. Uh, These are all and I'm not saying necessarily that we're using the words in the same way, but these were the same words that were used by uh, liberal theologians and bishops in the 1960s and 70s and early 80s to describe uh, the church that they wanted. And it was a church where basically there are no sexual sins outside of. Uh, you know, sins against consensual sex, right? You know, rape and that sort of, otherwise there's no such thing as sexual sin. And if it is a sin, it's venial. And you see McElroy say this, right? Why do we have to treat every act of sex outside of marriage as grave matter? So a lot of these things are just venial. That's exactly what they were saying in the seventies. Okay. And, and at the same time, even in the seventies, there was a sort of It wasn't as strong as today, but even then there was, well, we need to take a look again at homosexuality in in light of this and so on. And those of us who live during that period of time understand that when they say dialogue, they don't mean it. Uh, What they mean is we're going to talk and talk and talk to keep the door open to our point of view in the church. We're going to keep the pot stirring by dialogue. We're going to keep these ideas circulating, a kind of perichoresis of liberal ideas going on in the church. And then when we finally have our moment in the right pope, we're going to seize that moment. And when that happens, all dialogue stops. Just ask any seminarian from that period, what's the most fearful thing you could have been called? Rigid. Rigid mm-hmm. simply meant you believe what the church taught. So here's my number one problem with with McElroy, and, and then I'll turn it back over to you, was that when he says things like this, and as you said it yourself, you go into the academic world, you go into the corporate world, you cannot, you cannot dissent from these issues without losing your job, seriously, losing your job. And in some cases, like if you're in Canada or the UK, actually being prosecuted. Uh, for crimes, hate crimes. So my point is that when McElroy, when the McElroy's of the church come out with statements like this, they do not have the backs of faithful Catholics. In fact, they are actually putting faithful Catholics in jeopardy. They are harming faithful Catholics because then uh, a university uh, oversight board or a corporate uh, HR office can say, well, you're claiming that you are just basing your comments on gayness, on your faith. But look at what one of this member, these members of your own church has said. Obviously, you know, Pope Francis made him a cardinal. Obviously, this is a legitimate opinion in the church. So we just think you're being a bigot. So you don't have a leg to stand on at that point. Yeah. Okay, you can quote the catechism out the wazoo, but you've got all these Catholic voices from high high places, one very favored by the Pope, apparently, McElroy, saying... Oh, yeah, this is all venial stuff, you know, get over it. So anyway, that's my sort of take on this dialogue, inclusion, big tent. They don't mean it. They don't mean it. They mean we want our way and when we get our way, you're toast <laughs> yeah. and we don't yeah. and we don't care about. It. So anyway, what are what the thoughts do you have on, on the McElroy? I call it the McElroy manifesto.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's not I mean, it's it's it's, it's interesting that we're talking about this because, you know, at the beginning, you were saying that some people don't want to hear about, you know, kind of insider baseball, about church stuff, they want to hear more theological stuff, and then some are vice versa. But the fact of the matter is the two are totally connected. I mean, Deeply
0: interrelated.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And so, I mean, you know, sometimes in his letters, Paul is dealing with, you know, really inter-ecclesial sorts of squabbles, but he, then he goes into a great big exegesis of, uh, you know, Genesis and Exodus and, you know, and, and, well and, and, could there
0: and, could there have been a more intra-ecclesial squabble than whether or not new members of the church had to be circumcised <laughs> or
1: not? yep, that's about as an ecclesial as it can. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: I mean the average Roman pagan who at that time didn't have the slightest interest in Christianity, yeah. you know if you start preaching the faith to somebody in Athens or someplace, that's not going to be the first question they're gonna ask. Yeah. Right, now what about this circumcision thing? right but, but so and Paul can, talks about that in Galatians then
1: Sure, them. absolutely yeah and we could get to that I would like to just one other thing I kind of want to pick up about the McElroy thing in the light of kind of where we are as a as a culture and things like that is um it seems to me that the word inclusion has we've and, and even like the word di- we really have to be careful sort of what we mean by these words because if you just throw them out there they're so vague they can mean anything right so th- th- the fact of the matter is, Dialogue with the world is going to be a very complicated thing, depending on the circumstances you're talking about. There's no generic thing called the world. The world always has concrete manifestations, right? So let's say I'm a Christian right now in Putin's Russia. What, What does dialogue with the world look like for me? You know what I mean? Does it yeah. mean like, oh, we yeah. have to? We don't want to make Putin feel bad about himself. You know, we we don't want to come across as heavy-handed or, or something like that. What does dialogue with the world look like if you're Solzhenitsyn during the Soviet regime? You know, and what
0: does it look yeah. like if you're in a coffee shop in Manhattan and there's a goth girl with a nose ring sitting across from you? <laughs> okay, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that's no, an right. entirely different dialogue.
1: That's exactly right. Right. So so the point that I'm making is what it seems to be always is meant when we talk about dialogue with the world is dialogue with the secular liberal West, right? And then what it means is, is it really means some sort of compromise or accommodation, right? As soon as you bring up a regime that's obviously not on the side of the angels, all of a sudden dialogue with the world is gonna look different. And this is why Gaudium et Spes, when it talks about discerning signs of the times and openness to the world, it always qualifies it to say in the light of the gospel, that's right. So our dialogue with the world, in other words, and then I'll just make one other point about this and, and, and kind of be done with it, is not an open-ended thing that just like we're all yeah. everything's always endlessly up for grabs. And there's something that D.C. Schindler says about liberalism in his book that you and I both love, and we've talked about this, is liberalism is in a sense the reversal of the priority of act and potency. Right. So yeah. so that for Aristotle, there's there's the there's the there's the fullness of being, which would be the fullness of truth, goodness and beauty, which is a state of pure actuality. And everything else is in a state of potentiality towards that. So all true dialogue in an Aristotelian or a Catholic framework, it seems to me, it means that we are all in a state of potency vis-a-vis the truth. Dialogue is in the truth and it's and it's, yeah. and it's always towards the truth. What happens in liberalism is you simply get rid of any category of objective truth whatsoever. You either say it doesn't exist, or you say we don't have any access to it. So
0: it's just potency turtles all the way down.
1: It's potency, which means it's ever, ever greater emancipation from any restrictions on my freedom. That's right. It's it's it, Right. So That's I was just right. watching a really disturbing video that somebody sent to me where a guy was talking to a group of students in Oregon about, uh, queer theory. Okay. And he was asking them questions. He said, do you know what, uh, you know, Foucault's position was on pedophilia. And they are like, that's irrelevant. We don't know who cares, whatever. And he read it. It's very disturbing. Uh, and then there was another famous theorist that I can't, whose name I can't remember right now. And he said, do you know what this woman said about, uh, pedophilia? We don't know. We don't know. We don't care. They're kind of, you're a homophobe. They were already shouting at him because they knew that he was going to read very disturbing passages. And then yeah. Judith Butler actually has some very disturbing passages in her books about incest and, and pedophilia. Yeah, sure. And he's, he said, look, I'm not trying to be a jerk here. What I'm trying to show you is queer theory is precisely about transgressing boundaries. As that's soon right. as you've transgressed one boundary, you must immediately begin championing the group that's still within a boundary. And, and that's exactly so. That's what I mean by a kind of open. And what is the
0: boundary? It's not just the stipulations of certain moral laws uh, of religions. It's the natural law.
1: And it can be anything. Yes. In well, nature, you know, the, the point is, biology, the you know, point whatever. I'm
0: making is that really the only it, is a rash. You know, basically, it's a rational. It's a rational morality rooted in objective goods grounded in the natural law, that's the only valid boundary, because all all other sorts of purely uh, sort of divine diktat, divine command, sort of, yeah. it's in the Bible, therefore it's it's yeah. right or wrong. Um, yeah. Anyway, uh, yeah. I, 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 I could not agree more with that. It's about boundary transgression. And yeah. I am going to disagree with one thing you said, which is, <clears throat> and, I, and, I'm, and I know what you mean, so I'm not really disagreeing, where you said, Words like inclusion and dialogue are so vague in some ways. Yeah. And they're intentionally vague. Yeah. So as not to be able to be pinned down with a "aha, I told you so. But in reality, you and I both know that words like dialogue, inclusion are not vague. They are code. And you identified it. It's code for accepting a compromise with Western secular culture, especially Western secular sexual revolution culture and the whole sort of domain of uh, transgressing boundaries that's what it is code for uh you know 30 years ago would you have ever seen even a more liberal bishop in the catholic church pushing transgenderism uh, uh for, so the so the point then is is that yeah it really is about all the sexual stuff which is why really after McElroy, nods in the direction of, well, we have these excluded people who are, you know, immigrants and racial minorities. But then the whole rest of his piece is about we're taking sex way too seriously. So let's just have everybody come up to communion and forget all this sex stuff. All right. So in in, in reality, that's uh, we can see that this is what he means by dialogue and inclusion. And you raised the issue. Would in in his open table fellowship, Eucharistic table, comprehensive Eucharist for everyone, would would a grand wizard of the KKK be allowed to accept communion in McElroy's Cathedral, it, it, even if, he, you know, if he if he came up the aisle dressed in his white sort of grand or red or whatever it is, whatever the grand wizard of the KKK wears, would he be allowed to do so? Um, yeah. I don't I don't think so. What would, would a knee or just a, a, say a, a bunch of motorcycle gang hate to be stereotyped here, motorcycle gang, neo-Nazi you know, guys in leather and chains and shit or oh, stuff, I'm sorry, uh, you know, came walking up the aisle for communion, saying see as they came up. Would, would they be allowed to receive communion? I don't think so. Not in macro. So they don't mean complete open inclusion. They have some very, very harsh things to say about racism, about the environment, about climate change, about misogyny and so on. And I guarantee you, that if we ever got the ordination of women via people like McElroy and there was a breakaway in the church because of it, and there would be, there'd be a schism that the McElroys of the world would be the first to say good riddance. We didn't want you at our Eucharistic table. Anyway, this is what you saw in Anglicanism as well. You know, they said, well, you don't have to go along with the ordination when all of a sudden bang, if you didn't, you are out, you are out. But anyway, that's my rant in in response to what you were saying. Um, So let, let, let's come back then to to the McElroy piece uh, just yeah. just a bit, because he does use the language. This this troubles me, too. And it's I, I know, you know, I you listen to James Martin, for example, and he says you, you should always refer to people by what they prefer to be referred to as. It's rude not to. And so mm-hmm. Cardinal McElroy uses the language of LGBT, you know. I can't remember. He also adds the Q, but he Mm -hmm. talks about the LGBT community, which is already nauseating, in my opinion, because it's such a misuse of the term community. But okay, I'll stipulate there's a community there. What does it mean? And I say this in my Catholic World Report thing. What does it mean for the church to be radically inclusive towards a bisexual man? Let's say what does that mean? Yeah. Does it mean that if a, if a bisexual man is married, but has a gay lover on the side that the church is supposed to just say, OK, that's great. You're bisexual. You were born that way. That's your orientation. So we have to uh, we don't want to make a distinction between orientation and expression, as McElroy says in his essay, because that puts really burdensome, oppressive weights on people. So, OK. We, we, we have to accept a bisexual man and his wife and his gay lover uh, to the Eucharist. Is that, is that the new norm? Is that what we're doing here now? Or what about yeah. transgender? I, I mentioned in my Catholic World Report in our church here at the Ordinary Parish I attend, There's a very there was a very nice man, a little bit strange. He sang in our choir, and he started lecturing. Then all of a sudden, he shows up to lecture one day, and he gets up out of the pew, and he goes up to the lectern, and he's He's wearing, uh, you know, women's clothes and he's got a, a, a long black jet black wig on. And he's got makeup on and stuff. And he and we're all like taken aback. You know? So our pastor, very, very compassionate man, talked to this guy after mass and said, look, you're very welcome in our parish. We're here to love you and support you and help you in any way we can. We don't judge you, but you may not. You may not lecture here anymore dressed in drag. You can't yeah. do that because it confuses kids. Uh, our parents don't want their kids to see this kind of thing. It's confusing. And, you know, guy left the parish. So yeah. what, what? as I say in my Catholic World report, what would be Cardinal McElroy's response to that? To, to let the to turn mass into drag queen holy hour, you know, that we're just supposed to let anybody dress any way they want at the lectern. And, you know, a, a dude with a beard can dress as a woman and that's OK. Yeah. Um, So these are all questions I'm raising about this acronym that McElroy uses, LGBT.
1: Right. (laughs) And
0: what does it mean in the big picture for us to be radically inclusive to the whole kaleidoscope there of sexual preferences?
1: Right. And this is something that I think is fascinating, Chap, about this whole thing. And it's really coming out in the last, I guess, 10 years, you know, since the since the ball really got rolling on this stuff. But but the but the issue is what we're beginning to realize is the limits of the logic of liberalism, right? That that liberalism sort of has this thing to each his own, and we thought yeah. that would work—that that, that it, you could just basically privatize just about everything <laughs> under the sun and still kind of live together in a world. And you know, it's all, already the Frankfurt School is, is critiquing this in the in the fifties, this kind of individualist logic and 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 this in this notion. Um, Which
0: Horkheimer Adorno or others?
1: Yeah, yeah, you name it. I mean dialectics of enlightenment, you know they yeah, yeah, okay, in, you know it's in there. Um, but what's kind of interesting is they realize and this is where you start to get the politics of identity. Uh, Charles Taylor has some good stuff up on this, but it's basically yeah. like it's not enough for a person, let's say who has a homosexual orientation to be left alone. That was the first step, right? Did you, hey, you, you know, you let me be me and I'll let you be you. And that's, you know, that's kind of how this works. That obviously wasn't enough for the LGBT community because of it, very, very quickly then, as soon as they were given, you know, kind of more tolerance and acceptance, there was now an advocacy to be celebrated, right? And, and it was brought out. Now, what sort of then has to happen in a liberal culture which is kind of now moving in this more what I would call advanced liberal direction, you know, kind of more aggressive liberalism. Liberalism more as a worldview and as a kind of uh, uh, a competing catholicity, I think Balthazar would call it. Um, yeah, is is you see it already? We're having the problem in schools is that they're putting literature in the schools. Uh, they, there are some schools that have invited. Uh, Um, trans people in to give talks to the kids. And it's all in the name of helping the kids not to have homophobia and transphobia and stuff like that. But of course, any traditional Muslim, traditional Catholic, traditional Baptist, traditional Orthodox Jew, you know, whatever, whose, whose kids are going there are going to be like, I don't want you guys indoctrinating. I'm willing to allow you to do what you want in your bedroom, but I don't want you indoctrinating my children. But it always has to come to that because we do have to live together as a people. And this is where I think McElroy is also either naive or, or, he's, being, or he's being somewhat evil, um, and that is that you pretend that the church can, quote, be big enough for these kind of disagreements. So we can have a church where German Catholics marry gay people and African Catholics don't, but this underestimates the degree to which we really do need to be unified in order to go yeah. forward. Otherwise, yep. one group is going to get the preaching against, and the other group is, I mean, you can never avoid the problem. That's why the early church with the question of circumcision had to settle the damn thing. They they couldn't just say, Well, we'll let some church require it and some churches not. That, yeah, that's not unity and faith and love. That's chaos.
0: Because, and this is key. Yeah. The issue was not really circumcision. The issue was the status of all of those sort of holiness code, mosaic laws. Yep. Yep. And Paul realized that if you require circumcision, the next thing is requiring all the Levitical laws for everything else. And he and he had an entirely different theological vision for which parts of the Old Testament Mm -hmm. were still, in a sense, part of the new covenant and which because they were eternal, uh, whereas which there were parts of the old covenant which were preparatory and provisional. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were preparations for Christ. Well, Christ is here and we no longer do them like the dietary laws and so on. Yep. So in other words, the circumcision thing was the tip of a, of a, a much deeper theological iceberg. And right. the same here. Yeah. The same here. You yes. show me a cardinal. This is why I, I don't trust him. All right. And why I don't trust. A, oh, he's just calling for dialogue. What's wrong with dialogue? Because. All right. It's the tip of a deeper iceberg. You show me a prelate who says we need to allow for gay sex and for married gay men and women to come to communion. We need to allow for divorced and remarried people to come to communion. We need open table fellowship. We need women priests. All right. And I will show you a prelate that has a completely different vision of theology than what the church does. All right. Yeah. yeah. That that he's speaking the language of like you, you said before about a, a, it's a competing Catholicity. This mm-hmm. is not the same faith. Uh, once given to the apostles and to our fathers. It's not, it's a different faith.
1: No, that's Uh, absolutely brilliant. That's absolutely exactly it, I think. I mean, we already have the mainline Protestant churches to prove this, that, that it's not just that the mainline Protestant churches allow for openly gay people to attend church and openly gay pastors and things like that. The mainline Protestant church has become indistinguishable from left secular liberalism absolutely indistinguishable in everything so I, th- I think you make a brilliant point there that this seems like it could be a minor issue but that's not how it's played out historically this issue has been the tail that wags an entire theological dog that is simply yeah. the absolute conformism but this leads me to another point layer that i think is we're, we're, we're uh, which is super interesting about about um Galatians and circumcision, kind of all of that stuff. Um, I've been thinking about this. Well, in the Office of Readings last week. We were reading the, you know, the letter to the Galatians. And I was like, man, this Paul is like really urgent. I mean, there's something urgent going on here. And here, here's the deal, chap. If you think about it, you, you come through the Jerusalem Council and they make this very radical decision that they're not going to require Gentiles to be circumcised, which you're absolutely right. That is a whole theological thing goes with that.
0: They were Judaizers, right? right? Yeah, and, and right. I mean, the I don't mean that, that in an anti-Semitic no, 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 way. I mean, no, that's yeah. what Paul caused no. them,
1: right? I yeah, mean. exactly. That's right. Yeah, precisely, right? So it brings with it a whole different understanding of the relationship between law, grace, blah, 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 all this stuff. But here's what's interesting. You come out of the other end of the council, you finally get the Jerusalem Council to assert that Gentiles won't have to be circumcised, they won't have to observe kosher diet, um, etc. But they do require two things. And this is interesting, right? Right. They require that the Gentiles are not allowed to eat meat sacrificed to idols. Right. And then their other thing they're not allowed to do is engage in quote pornea. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Now, if, if you know I anything, mean, you know about this, but not everybody does. Um, pornea is an umbrella term that usually gets translated as sexual immorality. And I was doing some research on this recently, and I found out the no. reason the, the reason for that is it. It translates about 10 different words in the Old Testament for various kinds of shenanigans from prostitution to cult prostitution to homosexual prostitution. It's I mean, to, to adultery, uh, you know, et cetera. It has it's, a, it's an umbrella term. which To
0: invalid, back. incestuous marriages. And that's oh, absolutely thing. yes, concubinage. Yeah. Those yes. Scott, Scott Hahn makes this point in the Ignatius. Oh study bible that oh, okay. ornaya often simply meant invalid marriages to your to your first cousin and stuff like that
1: <laughs> right right but here's what's interesting if cardinal McElroy's is right and the sexual sins really aren't that important why would the jerusalem council in the very first decision by right. a church imposed on all churches mention sexual immorality and here's my thing about
0: this. no idolatry no sexual shenanigans
1: and why are these two things? I'm trying to think of that through. And it's and, and, and why is Paul so urgent about these things when he writes his various letters? These are the things that are going to keep the Gentiles com- from being absorbed back into the pagan world. They're going to be right. distinguished from the world by their higher sexual ethic, which they inherit from Judaism, and the fact that they don't engage in idolatry. And this is why Paul is not abolishing the law. Jesus says, I have not come to abolish the law, but fulfill it. Jesus actually makes the law more difficult because he turns it up. Look at the Sermon
0: on the Mount. It makes things harder, not easier.
1: Yeah, yeah, right. Exactly. He's like, unless your righteousness exceeds the Pharisees and the Sadducees, right? So it's now I can't
0: even look at a woman with lust.
1: I I know, right. (laughs) it. I know. Come on, right? So, so the point then would be not
0: that I do, by the way. (laughs) Right.
1: The point would be that if the gentiles that in the churches are now going to go back out into the streets and go to these festivals where they're eating meat sacrificed to idols that means that they're returning to their idolatrous ways if they go back into these situations by the way there's going to be prostitutes at these festivals and if they're sleeping with these prostitutes they're back to their idol there's an infidelity not to it's not a private sin and you do in the closet it's a sin against god that's the key yeah david when he sins with bathsheba he writes that psalm, of course, that we all know about. He says, against you and you only have I sinned. He's talking to God.
0: Yeah, yeah. Our That's sins are easy. against
1: God. And, right. yeah, you know,
0: and oh, there's a minor. Yeah. And what McElroy is calling for is this, is for the church to simply uh, take on the ways of pagan America, of techno-pagan, you know, America. That's and it. One of the things that, uh, so, by the way, before I get on to, you know, obviously then, you know, Paul once emphasized we are a priestly people. And I always talk about this. You know, the Israel was a nation set apart. Yeah. And even though the church breaks down the barrier, Jew and Gentile, the converts to the Christian faith are now expected to follow Christ. And we are now still, as a church, a people set apart, a holy That's people, right. a righteous right. priesthood. A priesthood is that which mediates God to the world, the world to God. And, yeah. and therefore, our path is the same path as Christ, as his disciples, the path of vicarious substitution and suffering for the love of the world, for the sake of the world. OK, oh. but that requires us not to live like the world. All Excellent. right, to, to live a higher righteousness than that of the world. Um, right. Now, anyways, I sort of uh, kind of forgot what my next point was gonna gonna be as as I was uh, ranting and 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 raving. But go ahead. If you but have that was a, to...
1: that was a darn good one. So I'm glad you you made yeah. that one before you forgot your other one. But but yes. Yeah. So this let's take that back to something that you said earlier, which really really nails it, and that is that. What Paul and the early apostles seem to understand is that if we allow the Gentiles to return to their former ways of life in these uh, allegedly trivial areas, like going to these festivals and eating meat sacrificed to idols yeah. and going visiting prostitutes and things like that, that don't seem like they really do that much damage. What it does is it disables the church to come out of the world for the sake of the world, Right. So and, and something you said earlier, um if, if we go to the mainline Protestant churches, it was in all of in every single case it seems to me it began with a rejection of a particular sexual teaching first contraception, uh, then it was uh divorce and remarriage, then yeah. it was gay marriage and gay sex uh, and now well, an abortion this, abortion. <laughs>
0: They're they're all in favor of legal abortion, even though they kind of frown upon it. Right.
1: Uh, You know,
0: it's yeah, they're all for it.
1: That's right. So if you think about what the mainline Protestant churches do, uh, they really just rubber stamp whatever Democratic uh, liberals want. And of course, we know you've written about this enough, and we can we might as well mention it while we're talking about it. There's, there's, of course, a certain kind of conservative liberal that does the exact same thing with the Republican Party, you know, while the popes are, are, are are lighting their hair on fire to tell us not to invade Iraq, there are American Catholics who are saying, Oh, no, it's a, it's a just war. Why? Why? Because we're in bed with the, you know, the world in in, in these. So there's other ways you can violate this. We don't want to, imply that the only way to, you know, violate this thing, of course, is sex. You know, it can be about greed. It can be about immigration. It can be about war. Um, But this is one area that is important, though, the sex stuff. It's not either or.
0: You know, and this is this is an important point, because obviously, Mm -hmm. as a Catholic worker myself, I believe strongly in the teachings of Dorothy Day. And therefore, I have a very strong affection for what we call the seamless garment of life. Yes. You know, ethic. And so I uh, it's therefore we have to be concerned not just with sexual matters, but with poverty and war, you know, all, all you know, injustices of all kinds. And I mean that mean that sincerely, yeah. but yeah. it does seem and it comes out in the McElroy piece. Right. Uh, and and among others from like Cardinal Soup, Beach and others have made comments along these lines, which is, can we just sort of get over, you know, the sex stuff a little bit? In other words in and emphasis once again it's code so they want to emphasize all these other issues and they say oh i'm not going against the church's teaching on sexuality i just want to round that out by to- making sure that we talk about all these other things too well you know newsflash we do talk about all those other things too it's not as if the church has been mute on those things it's yeah. just that believe it or not people fixate on the sexual things because that really hits oh in other words it doesn't hit home to me too much as to how much CO2 is in the atmosphere. It doesn't hit home to me too much, even though it should, uh, whether there's slave labor in the lithium mines, you know, in, in Africa and Asia and so forth. All of those things do concern me, but they don't have the visceral impact, right? That that, that sexual matters often do. And, and, you know, when a married couple says, oh, I'm, I'm not allowed to contracept or one spouse is caught being unfaithful or whatever, All right, The sexual sins... Are are an, an expression of of sort of the day to ness of our lives, and yeah. and there there is a certain shame associated with sexual sins. Uh, mm-hmm. C.S. Lewis wrote about this. All right, that yeah. that's good. Actually, we should yeah. have shame over our sexual sins. So my fear, when this pushed by McElroy and others, even in the speaking as a seamless garment of life guy, my fear is that this is all part of a move to simply. As you say, buy into or the you know the pagan American culture, and to simply do away. I mean, if you read the McElroy essay, I mean, let's face it, what he's talking about is doing away with sexual sins. I mean, pure and simple, doing away with because if you open the communion table to anyone who's committed any sexual sin of any kind other than sort of criminal sexual sins that involve violence and so on, right? Then you're what are you saying? I mean, like take the divorce and remarried the divorce and remarried can now come to communion. Well, you might as well then dissolve every marriage tribunal that handles annulments anywhere in the world, right. because the, the 99.9% of people that say, and I have an annulment, right? From my first marriage. The reason why you seek an annulment is because you, you want to be able to receive the Eucharist, yeah. right? No. It's not just that, oh, I don't want to be in an adulterous relationship. I, I want in a second invalid marriage. I want to be in the Eucharist, all right and insane and the thing is insane to such a person, say if the church had said to me 25 years ago when I got my annulment, oh don't worry, you, 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 you could I had priests who say this to me. Oh just don't worry about any of that. Just get married and come up for communion anyway. Is that not tantamount to saying that the church is wrong to demand annulments? Is that not tantamount to saying that second marriages are not contrary to our Lord adultery? Right. Because you don't allow adulterers. Right. I don't imagine Cardinal McElroy wants adulterers,
1: especially like uh, a man
0: with a mistress, for example, cheating on his pregnant wife like Donald Trump did. Okay. Mm. Having sex with, you know, porn stars, apparently. Uh, Now you save the hate mail folks. Okay. I know there's a people who love Donald Trump out there, but that's a fact. Donald Trump cheated on his wife when she was pregnant. Now, would sure. Cardinal McElroy be OK with that? Should should assuming Trump had been Catholic? Oh, come on up for communion, sir. That's no big deal because sexual sins are no big deal. Yeah. I don't know. It's it's, no, it's, it's absolutely mind boggling what in other words, what people don't do when they read something from McElroy like this, they they focus on words like dialogue, inclusion. What's wrong with that? Yeah. They don't understand that the, the logical entailments in the position, theologically yeah. speaking, and the logical theological entailment of what McElroy is saying is th- is that you can get divorced and remarried; it's not adultery. So go ahead right. and do it.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's 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 very depressing. And the other thing that's really, really bad about all this, like, the, there's a theological principle at stake here, and that is that, um, you know, Catholicism has always been, you know, we all say this all the time, but it really is an important thing to repeat, 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 is is about both and, right? So so orthodoxy is not just a matter of holding certain things. It's a matter of holding certain things in balance, right? So if you think about, to to go back to like Paul's letter to the Galatians, he's on the one hand, like frothing at the mouth. He's very, very upset. So he's got a real passion for the truth he thinks that what they're doing is separating them from Christ. He says he wishes the circumcision party would circ- would castrate, go all the way and castrate themselves. I mean, he's not he <laughs> yeah. punches. In the very same letter, he talks about his motherly love for the Galatians, that he gave birth to them in the faith, that he fed them milk. Uh, he longs to see them again. And so you're like, is he bipolar? <laughs> I like, mean, what's, what's wrong with Paul? No, because both of these are part of the Catholic message. We are both loving, compassionate, pastoral, but we don't mess around with the truth of the gospel because you step outside of the truth of the gospel, you become enslaved to something that's going to really hurt you. So that's one thing, right? Now, let's talk about half the church's teaching about poverty and immigration and the environment and things like, let's never talk about the sex stuff. No, the early church right, talked about right. both, right? So both. if we're going to yeah. be Catholic, we have to talk about the tough parts of the of the gospel that don't fit in with our culture, and then also talk about some of the things that we will agree with, say, the, the Republican or the Democratic Party, depending which one on. You know what I mean? But we can't just run around talking about half the thing. That was my biggest problem with the McElroy piece. He talks about inclusion and in dialogue and in the danger. He never, ever talks about the other half of the gospel. And therefore, in a way, he's lying.
0: Yeah, I mean, yeah. It's, a, it's, it, it, it's mendacious. It's deceptive. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it it really, really is. And you hate to say that about you know a cardinal of the Catholic Church. Um, yeah. I'm sure if I were to sit down and have a beer with the good cardinal, we would probably have much that we actually did agree upon. And and he, I mean, okay. he'd be a pleasant man to talk all the all the usual stuff that people say sure. about other. Oh, I'm sure he's a good person, and he probably is. Uh, but but the fact of the matter is is that he's playing a game. Yeah. He's playing a game. Liberals right. have been playing this game in the Catholic Church for sixty years. Yeah, it's what I sort of started with in this segment. It is a game. It's a word game, and right. what what the word game is meant to do is to deceive people by using words that everybody agrees are good things, like dialogue and inclusion and compassion yeah. and mercy and forgiveness. Yeah, we all agree those are good things, but yeah. then you are using them as code for a yeah. deeper agenda that you are hiding right. and that you're, you 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 really don't care about any of those words. What you yeah. care about is the sexual revolution right? and the gender revolution. This is what you care about. This is what motivates you. Notice the reason why McElroy doesn't talk about the other half of the gospel, Rodney. Is, notice what else he doesn't talk about. He doesn't talk about repentance. He doesn't talk about sin. He doesn't yeah. talk about conversion. What right. are the first words out of Christ's mouth at the very beginning of the gospel of Mark? Repent, repent, yeah. repent, repent, yeah. repent. Yeah. repent yeah. of what? In McElroy's universe, what would those Jews have to repent of exactly? Uh, right. What were they doing that Christ was so adamant they had to repent of? Uh, you know, I don't know, I guess unkindness to widows or something. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, so you get my point that yes, that, that I agree with you there. There is there is a deception going on here and it's it's troubling. They're playing a game. And my question then is, is Pope Francis also playing this game? Hmm. Uh, because as you correctly pointed out, Pope Francis, like in his recent interview with AP News, yeah. Was critical of the German synodal way, uh, referred to homosexual actions as sinful, and so on. Um, and yet, and he says he says all. I have a piece in the National Catholic Register. It's on my blog where I talked about there's a disconnect quite often between Pope Francis's words and his actions. His words are perfectly orthodox, but when you look at what he does, which to me is more important, he has re-empowered all the wrong people in the church. Mm-hmm. He has made Cardinal Holerich of Luxembourg in charge. He's the Relator General of the Synod. He's on record of saying, well, we need to change the teaching on homosexuality. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. He made Cardinal McElroy a cardinal over, you know, from San Diego. San Diego's never had a red hat, but he, you know, he didn't want to make some of these other Americans in traditional Cardinal at you know, red hats. He gave him the right. McElroy, you know, he's promoted James Martin to a Vatican job. Right. Um, you know, with a stroke of a pen, he could shut down the German synodal way that he says yeah. he hates so much. And yet he hasn't. He hasn't right. done so. so. You know, yeah. and he's, you know, he listens to Cardinal Supic. Supic is now on the dicastery for bishops. And mm-hmm. and Supic is not good. Let's just put it that way. So anyway, wh- yeah, what's, no,
1: the, I, what's your take yeah,
0: well, on, on, on Pope Francis' mean, but, role in all of this?
1: Yeah, well, I, oh. I think... I'll begin by repeating something that you mentioned to me a couple of weeks ago that I, I, I don't know why I'm so stupid. I hadn't thought of this, but I really think that you nailed it. You said that what uh, Francis likes is the pastoral style yes. of the McElroys and the soupages. It's clear that when he talks about, when he, when push comes to shove and he has to come down on the theological issues, he's on the on the side. Actually, he starts to sound like a communio theologian. When he begins to talk about these things i mean you know before he became pope he was very uh involved in communion and liberation and yeah. giussani was very very much involved in the italian communio um and so when somebody asked him the other you know not that long uh, pope francis that is about why can't women be ordained to the priesthood his answer was straight up balthazar you know he, he said that you know oh, American, he
0: made a distinction with the petrine and marian petrine functions church, of the church yeah.
1: And yeah. I and I don't for the for a minute think that that's just Pope Francis BS. And he it has it.
0: said that Guardini is a great uh, yeah yeah theologian. No, no, that's that he right. admires
1: I so. think, I, I, but here is I think the, the 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 danger, and I don't think it's that Pope Francis is evil or he's trying to you know ruin the church or anything. I really think there's a naivete there. Yeah, and I don't think he understands how I think he's actually maybe even been surprised to some degree how much. Within the Roman Catholic Church since the Second Vatican Council, there has been an entire faction that simply doesn't even accept in huge swaths of the faith. And they, and the reason they don't is because they thought the Second Vatican Council was the beginning of the liberalization of the church. And then when that turned out, like when they wrote the Dutch Catechism, you know, Paul VI was like, "Da, this is not acceptable. I think they were like, what? I thought we were all going to become liberals now right so what happened yeah. to those people during the papacies of John Paul II and Benedict is they sort of went underground or they went to universities where you can get they away they became
0: with they became theology professors
1: they became theology professors at subversive universities catholic or yeah. otherwise and they got where to they st-
0: kept the flame burning
1: that's right. They did. And, and it did, I mean, you were at Fordham. I was at Marquette. The flame was burning. We were oh, reading, yes. we were reading. Oh, geez. Yeah.
0: John Paul Bible. and Benedict did not change the universities at all. We, not We one were bit.
1: allowed to read Benedict and, and Ratzinger. Right. So here, here's the thing. Oh, the
0: trouble I had getting a Balthazar dissertation through at Fordham. It was amazing.
1: Right. Thank right.
0: God for the late, great Ed Oakes being
1: there. Right, so I think what is happening right now is because Pope Francis has, has has underestimated sort of what the buzzword dialogue means, and he kind of then trots it out too. I think he literally genuinely means a kind of getting together within the truth of the faith and and seeing you know wh- where are we going you know et cetera et cetera. Um, the the out of the woodwork all of a sudden comes all of these underground progressives that had bought into a whole different version of catholicism in my opinion. I mean it was it's, it's it's a totally different version incompatible with the faith of the church and now they're just espousing it from the rooftops. Um and just one other quick point about this yeah. that I think yeah. is 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 important. I've been reading uh Andrew Willard Jones' book The Two Cities with my integrating seminar this semester. It's been a blast. The kids are they're loving it. They 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 can't they they can't Great get book. It great it's, it's, it's unbelievably good it's so readable yet it's so brilliant we need well, to have
0: he, him on the show again
1: yeah that was great that was a very fun show but one of the things he points out as you know larry is in the early modern period the papacy gets radically weakened and as the papacy gets weakened the various national churches get stronger and stronger and each of them kind of develops their own flavor of catholicism yeah. Um, what's interesting kind of ironically is they get very heavy handed and they get very controlling. So the Spanish Inquisition is the, is, is a kind of one of the, out, the, the the byproducts of early modernity. You know what I mean? The, it's where the Spaniards want absolute control over what people are thinking and doing and all that stuff, just like the German. Lutherans, well, and,
0: and to get rid of the Jews and Muslims, to have a unified well, Catholic Spain so that the they, crown. So, I mean, much like Constantine, so that the absolutely. crown has this spiritual glue to hold the nation together. Yes. Um, because it's, we, it's, we tend to think of modern Spain as yeah. this ethnically mono, you know, homogenous thing. And it was a real and it still is to a certain point, a real mixture of competing yeah. ethnicities yeah. and Spanish That's
1: dialects right. and so on. That's right. And they didn't want that. So, so they didn't. What, what, what what you get is as the spiritual power and the spirit the unifying spiritual power decreases, the temporal power rises up, and people begin to think of themselves first as Spaniards, as French, as German. So, so true British.
0: localism and diversity goes away in
1: early modernity, which is which is totally ironic, right? Yeah, but right. Here's here's the deal. What what uh, the right of kings was in you know the seventeenth century is exactly, it seems to be, what liberalism has become in the 20th century. It's yeah. also this hegemonic temporal power that tells everybody how to think about everything. And the spiritual power, the unifying power of the church is so weakened that what you've gotten in the church is tribal Catholicisms. There's no unifying Catholicism anymore. Right-wing That's Catholics. Right. Uh, believe in uh, they they vote for Trump for God's sake you know <laughs> this is yeah. this is bad it's gotten that people that Catholics think that Trump is like some kind of a saint and he's the most he's the most un-Catholic person you can practically think of right. Or or people are cheering on the Iraq war in spite of the fact that it does probably not meet a single criteria of just war theory, right? Um right. and then of course you get the McElroy's who are sidled up to the you know the Biden and, people and and out, yeah. in, out in San Francisco and Biden couldn't can't get enough abortion, apparently, you know. So um yeah. it, it's it's very depressing. And and uh and I don't think Pope Francis has helped as much as he could. I think what John Paul II and Benedict did because of the weakened. Spiritual unity and all that stuff. They were very much teaching evangelical popes. They yes. proclaimed the truth of the faith. And let's face it, those guys didn't come down right or left. They came down Catholic. Yeah. <laughs> right. Oh yeah.
0: On Absolutely. Issue after
1: issue. I mean, they weren't. They weren't. Which is solid. why
0: they're they were hated by both the left and the and the far right. The traditionalists right. hate. Well, they don't hate, but the traditionalists have deep antipathies to John Paul and Benedict. And so do leftists, of course.
1: But especially uh, the neocons uh, with Pope Benedict. They oh, did, they yeah. Hated the, you know, uh, Caritas in Veritate. Uh, and those passages in Centesumus Anus where John Paul II doesn't sound like a Republican. They literally co- added some of those passages out.
0: And the, yeah. Uh, and, and, and the 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 paragraph, I think, 46, 47 of Space Aldi, where Benedict says, you know, only a few people go to hell. Yeah, <laughs> more yeah. than likely, it's just a, the vast, vast majority of people. He says are going to have to go through some purgatory, but they're go, they're going to yeah. make it. Uh, yeah, no, they don't right. they don't like that, and and so that's yeah. not for all of his uh, you know Panzer Cardinal right wingness. Apparently, yeah. that's not exactly a very right wing Catholic perspective,
1: right? No, it's questions it's, of things like war and economics and the environment and stuff, uh, Benedict and John Paul II both sound like lefties. Yeah. Right. I mean, you, yeah. you, you know, I mean, it's, so that's kind yeah, of my point, is that what sadly yeah. is happening here is that McElroy is giving voice to one half of the truth of Catholicism. And it's the half that fits with left liberalism. But that's not Catholicism.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and see, see and I'm, I might be giving Pope Francis the benefit of the doubt precisely because he's pope. And I think to a certain extent, a Catholic should do that. We should steel man the pope's arguments as yeah. specifically Catholic ones, because he is the Pope. Yeah. Uh, but I, I, I do think, for example, that the Cardinal Supiches, the Cardinal McElroys are not naive. I think they have an agenda. I think they know exactly what they want, and they yeah. want the church to look like. And now I remember what I was going to say earlier that I forgot. They want the church to look like modern culture because they yeah. actually really and truly believe in the values of modern American Western European secular liberalism, they do. I don't think Pope Francis does, but I think they do. Um, yep. And here's the interesting thing: when you you read things from uh, McElroy and uh, emails that I get from some liberals too, and then read things from like Cardinal Batzing in in Germany, headed you know the German Episcopal Conference, they all say something very interesting. And I would ask listeners and, and viewers to pay attention to this whenever you hear it every single one of these hyper-progressive Catholic leaders will mention at some point, if we don't change our teachings on these issues, we will no longer be relevant as a church, and we will dwindle to almost nothing. We will become just this tiny little sect. And in order, therefore, to make sure that that doesn't happen, we need to change these teachings. Well, let me, let's just unpack that for us. What is, th- That is so wrong on a billion different levels, okay. right? First off, it's wrong because, well, the, as you've pointed out over and over today, the Protestants have already gone down that path. We're hemorrhaging people. Well, it must be because we've had, we've got incorrect positions on hot button issues. So yeah. if we change our positions on those hot button issues, people will come back. Not, right. Right. not. The problem right. isn't that the church has unpopular views on hot-button issues. The problem is is that people don't believe this stuff anymore, period. They don't believe in the Christian evangel. They don't believe Christ rose from the dead. They barely believe in God. You ask, for example, you go to Germany and you take a poll and ask how many Germans believe in God, and it's about 15%. It's even less than some other European countries. The fundamental root problem is a de facto atheism and an overt atheism. It's unbelief. And yet here are these liberals like McElroy panting with tongue on the ground after the modern world, you know, yeah. as if we need to fill the pews by changing our position on these issues. Yeah. The, the other thing is that he said, well, there's no, what happened to truth? What if we're right and the world is wrong? Right. <laughs> and I think, oh, oh, We're going to, oh, you know, well, we need to sort of sidle up to Hitler uh, because we want to remain relevant to young Nazi youth. And if we, if we go against Hitler, he's going to throw us into concentration camps and we won't be relevant anymore. All right. And then that's, then there were churches saying that, which is why you had to have the confessional church, you know? Yeah. So, so, so my, my, my point sort of in all of this is, is that there is uh, a real, I'm going to say, it, it's just a real stupidity. It's a right. monumentally stupid thing to say. And it also points to something for all of their, Ranting ah, and arguing yeah. against integralism of the yeah. hard right. They're integralists, oh yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. and
0: they they are it's actually accurate. they are actually, especially the Germans with the church taxes. They're thirsting after. they are lusting after the old Constantinian arrangements yes. of throne and altar. yeah, uh, they would like nothing more than for the Church of Germany to simply become, you know, an adjunct of the German state, which it is essentially sure. right now, an adjunct yeah. of the German state. Uh, right. And so that's the irony. They're actually Constantinian integralists, but in the yeah. liberal register.
1: That's exactly right. I mean, the, the, again, we have the mainline Protestant churches to look at, right? The mainline Protestant churches are the civil religion of left liberalism. They're they're nothing but that. Now, what this means, yeah. Chapman, you know this. The is NPR that, at prayer. That's exactly right. But But here's <clears throat> what happens to those churches then. There's always going to be a cadre of people who actually would like to hear the gospel, <laughs> right? Yeah. So they always then quit going to those churches. Once those churches become totally co-opted by uh, the progressive left, the people that still believe in some of the traditional church teachings that are not popular have to, have to, of course, break off and start another yet another wing of the Presbyterian church or the Methodist church or Lutheran church. <laughs>
0: Yeah. the okay. Super duper reformed Presbyterian yeah. church.
1: Yeah. Yes, exactly. Right. The still reformed one. Right. And then what happens is the people that still go find out that this church is still somewhat held back by some of the God baggage. It's still some limits. So why not just go to Starbucks on Sunday morning where there's no, God. Yeah. like national yeah. public radio has nothing yeah. stopping them from embracing everything. They're nihilists. Right. So they can just go as far. The church is always going to be 10 years behind New York Times. So yeah. why bother yeah. with it? <laughs> right. So they, it, all, Yeah. Yeah. And what
0: it is, is that these guys, they're allowing NPR and The New York Times to define the really real for us. Yeah. I mean, that, that's what strikes me so often is that in the minds of these guys, there's just no, there's, there's no argument to be made. There's no question. Well, of course the church is wrong on these issues. Of course yeah. they are. Right. And it means that they, they haven't, there's no self-critical moment here and there's no yeah. critical moment towards American culture. They simply yeah. buy lock stock and barrel into the plausibility structures as a sociologist go into the plausibility structures of late modern American left wing culture, secular culture. And, and they think that's what constitutes the really real and, yeah. and truth. And and so the church has to line up with this. Um, So anyway, uh, yeah, it's it's deeply disheartening. So to go back to Pope Francis, you know, I don't think he thinks that way. I agree with you. I I think there is um, I'm going to say two things. I think there is there's a deep naive. It's hard to believe that he could be this naive. It's hard to believe that a man of his rank who spent so much time, you know, in the upper echelons of the church could be this naive about what's really going on. But it kind of seems that he is.
1: Yeah. The other thing is this. I do think that. I do think that Pope Francis has been infected by. Modern liberal thought in a way that neither John Paul II nor Benedict. I had. agree.
0: And that was going to be my next point.
1: Yeah. I think their willingness to call this culture a dictatorship of relativism or a culture of death means yeah. that they had a very strong radar about where liberal modernity takes us. I think yeah. Pope Francis thinks it's more benign than that. I'm not saying he's a liberal. I just think he thinks it's more benign. I think, too,
0: there is a theological element here. I would, I really wonder what Pope Francis's theology of grace is. I wonder if it isn't a certain hyper-ronarian uh, sort of view of you know that that grace is always it's already operative everywhere, which it yeah. is. all right but so I wonder if you know in discerning the signs of the times or the movement of the Holy Spirit and you see this in the synodal way, um, if Pope Francis isn't just a little too quick to see the movement of the Holy Spirit in just about everything that's taking place in secular culture. In other words, I think Pope Francis has a diminished sense of the distorting effects of sin. Yeah. in people's lives, and I therefore think he's not very astute at discerning the distorting effects of the zeitgeist. I think he has a tendency to conflate the zeitgeist with the geist, the <laughs> godgeist, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, in, in overly simplistic ways, rooted in a kind of very homogenized notion of graces everywhere and pretty much the same in everyone. Right. You, what what do you think of that?
1: I, I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. I, I do think that he has been affected by a certain strain of liberation theology that kind of conflates um, social yeah. justice with eschatology in an overly easy way. And yeah. uh, and that would be, again, something that would maybe make him different than Benedict or John Paul II, who both definitely wanted to see social justice, preferential option for the poor, et cetera, et cetera, but had some serious, serious misgivings with certain forms of liberation theology that conflated political liberation with liberation from sin. And um, yeah, yeah. And so, again, I just think that when you're in a culture where the current is going so rapidly that way, if you're not constantly cautioning about that tendency, then you're then you're giving into it. And again, I don't know if Pope Francis knows he's giving into it, but by not talking about these things, these dangers, I think that opens him up to the charge of of cooperating with the quote zeitgeist.
0: I, I agree. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, I, I wonder, too, if he doesn't have a certain Uh, pop uh, a very simplistic populist understanding of of ordinary people Uh, for example in his criticisms of the german sonata way he criticized it essentially for being elitist that it's being Mm -hmm. run by a small few people who are ideologically motivated by a secular ethos or whatever now he's not wrong about that that is essentially correct but i think what he's also wants to say what's sort of implied in that is that they are therefore detached from what the average German thinks that they're not represent they're elitist because they're not representative of what the average Catholic German Catholic
1: actually thinks. And quite
0: frankly, I think they are,
1: (laughs) right? Yeah, no, I think, I think that's right. I think, hopefully, I think what he kind of means by that is the Germans are elitist say vis-a-vis the Africans, and because because I think they are. Yeah. And I kind yeah. think he, I think he was really annoyed at the way they did the Amazonian thing. I think he thought he was going to send them down there and they were going to be open minded, to other cultures. And all they did was just down there and try to push in a heavy handed way, a left liberal German agenda on the, the people of the Amazon. But and,
0: the whole and, the and, whole point behind the synod was just to get married priests.
1: That, that, I mean, exactly, that, right.
0: It was all just to get married priests and yeah. hopefully also then just ordaining uh, local indigenous married guys. You know, right. to, to the priesthood out in their tribal, you know, may not be a bad idea. I'm not saying that it's a horrible idea. All I'm right. saying is you're right. It, the Pope had to be annoyed because oh, yeah. he, he wanted them to talk more about. If you see in his Apostolic Exhortation Querida uh, Amazonia, he talks a lot about the environment of the environment. Yeah. And localism and the need to avoid technological destruction of of the environment. And so on. he doesn't talk at all about married priests. And so I think I I think you're right. I think he is annoyed by that, um, that movement in the church. So we'll see. I mean, it's it's all going to be very, very interesting to see how all this synodal stuff uh, plays out. I mean, that's the other thing we need to talk about with regard to the McElroy essay. I know that uh, we're running out of time Uh, with regard to McElroy's stated belief. That the Synod is going, as you said, is going to talk about issues that we thought were settled, like women's ordination and homosexual sex uh, and other sexual sins, divorce and remarriage. We thought these things were settled. And McElroy point blank says, no, these are not settled and we need to keep talking about them. So that conjures up two things. Number one, well, didn't Pope Francis say that this is exactly what the synodal process is not going to be? It's not going to be a super parliament voting on various doctrines. The other question I would have for Cardinal McElroy is then what is your when is a doctrine settled? What is your view? What is your hermeneutic of the tradition? And that's that's a viable theological question. What is Cardinal McElroy's views on uh, the indefectibility of the church, the continuity of the tradition, the authoritative weight of magisterial statements? That was the elephant in the living room. Uh, I mean, otherwise, what's he saying? That well, none of we, we don't care about any of that anymore. That's all just silliness. Now we're just gonna start voting like modern yeah. people voting yeah. on all these things. Yeah. So I don't know. What do you think?
1: No, I think you're you you've touched on something I think super important here. And I think this is where we go back to kind of something you said earlier, or maybe I said, I can't remember now, but um, a lot of times it looks like you're 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 changing little issues. I'm like, yo, what's the big deal with ordaining women? A lot of Catholics would be like, why don't we ordain women? I get, you know, they're sympathetic with that. What's the big deal with
0: circumcision?
1: Yeah, exactly. No, that's right, right. But but, but what is at stake is in order to get your way on these issues, it also is going to result in an entirely different, quote, method in theology. You're going to have to. You're going to have to sociologize the church. You're going to want low ecclesiology. You're going to want a very low theology of revelation, right? You're, you're going to want heavy-handed yeah. historical critical method and historicism of the traditional sources. I mean, so you see, it, it, it comes with a whole. It's it like dominoes. There, it's right? like yeah. you said. It's
0: like you said to me in a meeting we had a couple of weeks ago, where you said issues that start very, very small. Yeah. Then unra- it's like pulling on a thread on a sweater, right? And the whole thing unravels. Like in the Reformation, they're saying, okay, well, we don't want any works righteousness. We right. don't want grace to be anything other than utterly gratuitous. So none yeah. of our works are down, redound to our salvation. Yeah. And you yeah. think, well, okay, let's talk about And then you, blah, that <laughs> yeah. requires a whole different wow. church. <laughs> yeah. That requires a whole different church.
1: That's exactly right. And a mentality goes with it. This is something else that we were talking about with the Andrew Willard Jones book in my last class. Um, In order for Luther's soteriology to work, he has to utterly juxtapose in a dialectical way, the inner man and the outer man, faith and works, um, the temporal and the spiritual, which then plays right into his politics, which is the absolute domination of the temporal order over everything because spiritual yeah. power has nothing to do with this world larry it's all other you know it's a, you know yeah, that's right. so so you end up with an absolute hegemony of german princes their power i mean the poor peasants revolt and luther's like kill them right <laughs>
0: Oh, yeah. He lost a lot. He lost a lot of face. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
1: It was not accidental to his theology that this would be the politics that he would affirm. Right. So so what you're showing is that these little issues sometimes seem to be isolated. But in fact, they they come with a whole package deal. And that's why. The liberal Protestant churches don't just have gay marriage. They also have a pluralistic theology of religion. They have low Christology. They have no ecclesiology. Um, you know, it's pure democracy. <clears> yeah, it all, it all goes together.
0: Nobody wants yeah, to admit oh, uh, uh, Yeah, home. and they, they have contraception. They have abortion. Uh, yeah. I, I'm sure that there are many Anglicans that are just straight up Unitarians. Uh, right. They've always had that tendency anyway, but...
1: <laughs> Salvation by taste alone. No. Yeah, well, it's yeah. funny. I mean, the Anglicans are actually holding the line better than the, quote, Episcopalians in the states. But that just shows you how far the mainline churches here have gone into the culture. I mean, if you're if you're more left than British Anglicans, you're pretty left.
0: <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, they're,
1: they're out of communion, right, with the Anglicans because they're so progressive on, on these issues. And because yeah. they... Because they ordained practicing homosexuals and made women bishops, I think they lost communion with the Anglican Church.
0: They did. And uh, it's only going to be a matter of, I mean, you you talk about the decline in Catholic attendance at mass in German Catholic churches. The Protestant churches are even worse. I mean, if you have like, say, 10 percent of Catholics on any given Sunday are attending mass in Germany, the Lutheran attendance is about 2 percent. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, no. so there's, there, as I, s- I wrote somewhere, there's a control in this synodal experiment and it's called <laughs> Protestant churches in Germany. There's a yeah. control. All right. Yeah. And that control doesn't make the synodal process promising. Right. And that it goes back to, or, to,
1: yeah. So go you know ahead. What?
0: Sorry. Go, no, no, it just, and that goes back to what McElroy said, you know, yeah. well, the synod, we need to talk about all these things. Oh, geez.
1: Yeah. yeah. I'd rather not. A- Right. It goes back to something we said earlier that I think just, again, ha- has to be reiterated. The trajectory of liberalism is always in one direction. That's right. Which proves that it's not dialogical. That's right. It, it's, it's, it, it's progressive by nature. In other words, the spirit is always heading in the same direction, according to a liberal. More Greater emancipation greater freedom from the past from tradition from nature from god etc etc that's the trajectory there's no there's nothing in a state of act that can that can measure this thing and that's why you don't want to talk about truth and you don't want to talk about good you know etc etc it has to be open-ended yeah
0: yeah and ultimately so so very the 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 silliness of it all i mean as i said earlier they 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 want to and I, and I mean when I said it, it's so stupid because they really do think I, I honestly, Hauser, I think that liberal Catholics really believe that if we just changed the church's teachings on all of these hot button sexual and gender issues, that we really would suddenly bring the young people back into the church. We would stop alienating. And I just find that so incredibly dumb so naive, so superficial, so lacking in any profound. Have they never read Charles Taylor, Carl Truman? I mean, any of these? I mean, it's actually talk about the church always being 10 years behind. How about 100 years behind? I mean, we, yeah. we, there are very astute observers, both Catholic and non-Catholic and even non-believing, who have yeah. pointed out that the trend of the modern world is away from transcendence, away from God, away from religion, and towards an immanentized transcendence if there's any God concept left at all. Uh, wow. Utterly privatized, utterly secularized—that this is the okay. ethos of modernity. Newman was writing about it in the 1830s. Cyril sure. Regan had a great article in Catholic, uh, in the ch- ch- Church Life Journal. In, uh, I, I've got it somewhere. I quote it in a few places where he quotes Newman from the 1830s, talking about modernity represents, you know, what the French call an entirely different mentalité. It's—it's yes. it's not just a different, a different opinion on these Mm. issues it's an entirely different way of thinking this is what i meant earlier when i said liberals simply accept the plausibility structures of the new york times as the really real this is newman's point modern people simply swallow a a completely different ethos from that of the church and yet the liberals continue to think that the issue is not disbelief it's not
1: secularism that that people will flock back to church if we just have gay marriage. Yeah. Well, I think two things, Chap, in response to that, because I think that's 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 exactly right. The, what what you're saying is that liberalism is a competing Catholicity. It's that's right a, it's with an, a different it, priesthood. an entirely different things that you believe in. And 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 I think the reason <sighs> that that some people don't see that is because liberals can affirm certain Catholic teachings. Well, of course they can. <laughs> you know that, yeah. that. I don't know. The sky is blue. Catholics believe that. Okay, so liberals. But so therefore, you know, they're compatible.
0: Jesus was but, important.
1: Yeah, there you go. Exactly right. But obviously, it's precisely what it rejects about Catholicism where you find its fangs coming out, right? And and that, yeah. and that's so, that, yeah. so that's the. But I think actually, what has happened is there 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 were a whole bunch of people remaining in the church because the council gave them hope that the church would be liberalized those people are and inc- were getting increasingly frustrated right because their hope was that eventually the church would turn into the new york times i don't think they do think that we're going to get full pews um when when uh, we liberalize the church i think they know the church will kind of go away but i don't think they care i think they kind of right. think, well then we just merge into the New York Times and who cares because that's what we've wanted all along. I almost think these people will the death of the church in an institutional. It's it's going to be now a church of the people.
0: Yeah, you know, I think you're absolutely right there, actually, Hauser. I stand corrected. This is where my case falls to the ground. <laughs> no, I just uh, I no, just, no, no, yeah. no, I think you're absolutely right. You have just said something I think absolutely brilliant. It's not, it's and well, this then explains away the, the naivete element here. It's not that they fully expect that if we just change our views on these things, people will come back to church. It's just, they don't give a damn about the church. They know that it's dying and going away. And they, what they want is simply secularity with Jesus sprinkles on top. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, not only secular ethos. And so Mm -hmm. they, they're actually either overtly or not, or or implicitly willing the death of the church and actually, Were there not in the heyday of the sixties and seventies all of these sort of death of God theologies yeah, the that were saying right? that actually yeah. sec secular Harvey Cox yeah. that secularism is actually a creation of Christianity and yes. it is the full flowering of Christianity absolutely that Christianity creates liberalism and yeah. thus Christianity has had had it already from the beginning an right. inbuilt an inbuilt eschatology of Self dissolution and ultimate irrelevance. Yes, as the message of Christ simply passed into the world as 11 in the form of secular liberalism. I yeah. think you I think. I think this nails it. I think you're right. I think that's exactly yeah. it.
1: Yeah, it's it's brilliant, chap. It's it's like because it, we're, we're ending on a note that I think is super important, and that is that what these yeah. people embrace, and this is why Cyril O'Regan w- wastes so much of his time writing about Hegel. People are like, why are you write a book this big on Hegel? Well, because this is precisely it, is that liberalism is the end of history, it's the goal, and, it's, it's, yeah. and it's a Yoyakimist, uh view of the spirit, that the yes. spirit is, it, it, right? It's
0: Joachimist. It's,
1: yeah. Yes, exactly. That, it's, that well, the, the To my
0: listeners, Joachim of Fiore, who had this sort of yeah. eschatology. Age of,
1: of the spirit. A, yeah.
0: age, the different ages of the church, the age of the father, age of the son, now we're in the age of the spirit,
1: which is free-flowing. Yeah. Yes. And it's going to be basically the church morphs into liberalism. And then it's the church of the people finally. And we don't have the big, bad hierarchy. Well,
0: and- the reason why I made my comments, though, about uh, many liberals thinking if we just change our teachings here, we'll get more people back in the pews because the Germans are talking this way. They're saying, yeah, we're we're not going to be relevant. McElroy, we're not going to be relevant Exactly. Uh, to We're losing young people left and right because we're not going to be relevant and we're going to lose all these members if we don't change our right. teachings. Yeah. Uh, so maybe it's not so much that they think people will flock back. It might be just a sort of rear guard action to say, can we at least stop the blood flow? Uh, yeah. Because I think, I don't know if many of them consciously really do want the church to simply end. Uh, I, I, I think they want some semblance of church to continue. They, they want, want some. They do. <laughs> yeah. They want the church tax. Yeah. Right. They they, they they do want some explicit Christians to still be around, I guess. Right. Uh, yeah, you know, to keep the, 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 dangerous memory of the radical Jesus alive. Right.
1: Can I just say something, Well, final thing then about sex? Like we started out kind of talking about sex stuff.
0: Yeah. And then we should probably wrap this up. It's one yeah, 30. Should, I, got,
1: I, I got to take my dog out and go to the dentist. Um, yeah, there you go. <laughs> so, yeah. So in uh, that order, was, yeah, not in, precisely in that order. Yeah. But, um, it, it was precisely the one of the the things that, about pagan culture that Paul and, and, the, and the rest of the apostles were worried about was how badly the sexual culture of the pagan world treated people. I mean, you know, I mean, right. it, was, it, was, right. it, was, it was awful, right? Well, the sexual revolution's not exactly being friendly to people either. I mean, some of the stuff I've been reading lately, I, I'll get on my Google newsfeed. I don't know where I think I read this in the New York Times a while back. Um, apparently millennial couples, I may have mentioned this on a previous uh, podcast, mm-hmm. with you, are increasingly in what are called sexless marriages. Oh, yeah. What that, what that means is that they're having sex fewer than five times a year. OK, now these are these are people in their 30s. I mean, th- you know, right. So this this doesn't sound right to me, uh, <laughs> but but it's porn. Uh, Porn, yeah, well, so, well, and they finally get around to say, well, one of the factors, is, you know, here it is, right? They're saturated with pornography. The Japanese are, are increasingly, the young people are not interested in having sex with actual people because right. they have other ways of, you know, getting their dollies and stuff like this. So isn't this funny, like the sexual revolution, which should liberate us for more and more fun sex without any guilt, has basically liberated us to not having any sex.
0: No sex at um, all
1: it'll be soon be the case that only Catholics and Amish people are still having sex. Um, <laughs> I mean, we as, have- as
0: Jean-Luc Marion once said at a faith and reason thing, we went to pretty soon Catholics are the only ones doing it the old fashioned, the old way.
1: fashioned way. Yes, he said that uh, Well, you totally know, and, and class, yeah. Uh, yeah.
0: And, and the thing is too, I just read an article yesterday and I don't remember the source, but it was reputable. The, there's been a survey done in the United States of uh, young women, I think mostly you know, high school and college age, young women. Yeah. One third, one third have mental health issues. Oh yeah. Deep deep depression and suicidal ideation. One third, one third of American young women. But I thought secularism was supposed to liberate us. And this is your point. One of the things that the McElroy's uh, and Supiches of the world don't seem to understand, don't get is Mm -hmm. that secularity is not benign. It is highly right. destructive. It yeah. destroys everything in its path.
1: Yeah. It
0: just absolutely destroys everything. in It's all path.
1: values this way. They're, everything gets this. The sexual
0: know? revolution has been largely destructive uh, and not constructive. And now we have an entire epidemic of young people with suicides and depression and mental health issues uh, right. because they suffer from spiritual exhaustion. Yeah, they have they have nothing absolutely nothing in their lives to lift them out. Hey, but anyway, um, hey, this has great been great. It is, uh, We've been talking now for about an hour and 15 minutes, almost an hour and 20. So that's great. You got to go to the dentist. And to my viewers, I, I'm sorry, I haven't been on the blog very much. I've been traveling. I've been giving talks. I'm heading out tomorrow to Chicago to give a talk to some word on fire people. I'll be back on uh, Thursday. And then I am done traveling for another month. So I'll be blogging more and so on so thanks again everyone for uh paying attention (laughs) for this hour now i have to uh let's see end this sort of thing uh stop recording and uh